The view presented by the country in the months of July and August is an interwoven patchwork of potatoes, wheat, barley and oats. With so little intervention of meadow and pasture, the one is surprised how the inhabitants contrive to maintain their cows, horses and sheep. That was how agricultural journalist Horatio Townsend described the Irish countryside in 1829. That is in sharp contrast with descriptions from 70 years later, in the early 1900s, descriptions of a green desert, a howling wilderness of grass. A cultural marker of landscape change further back in time are legends of extensive woods where a squirrel, a pine marten, or even a human could travel for miles upon miles along the treetops without touching the ground. This folkloric trope was found in the glens of Antrim, and near Loch Erne and Loch Ney, in Leitrim, Galway and Clare, and in Cork, Kilkenny, Tipperary and Wexford. It was also found in England, like in the Cheshire rhyming couplet that goes, from Blaken Point to Hill Ree, a squirrel could leap from tree to tree. This is legend for sure, but it contains some encrusted memory of a more wooded landscape. It is interesting that in the early 1900s the term wilderness was used to describe what was human-made landscape and what was understood as human-made landscape. That's the point here. While we have cultural biases towards seeing the countryside, the landscape as purely natural, as about non-human nature, it is in fact a creation of the interface, the interrelation between society and non-human nature. So this is the beginning of the Peelers and Sheep Pandemic Special. And I'm your host, Terry Dunn, and these special episodes are something of an environmental turn. In future episodes, we'll go back to pick up the thread of the hidden histories of the Irish Revolution. But, as always, we have a particular focus on agrarian matters. These are tales from the land. This episode and the next one are about zoonotic diseases. Zoonotic diseases are where the disease-causing agent, the pathogen, passes from animals to humans. That's the way it is with influenza or the various strains of flu, with SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2, with Ebola and with AIDS and with Lyme. So the current coronavirus predicament involves an agricultural question and an ecological question. It has to do with our relations with animals and with the spaces in which animals live, but it is also a sociological question because we have to understand the social side, the side to do with relations between humans, the social side of the relationship between human and non-human nature. This may seem like a long way away from earlier episodes, but in fact agrarian social history is a history of how people have changed the landscape through their work and the social relations that work is embedded in. One aspect with that is an aspect of movements and conflict and uprisings, but another aspect is ecological. So what I'm going to take you through here is first a look at the landscape as a creation of the social-ecological interface. Then we'll look at one particular zoonotic disease, Lyme, because it has the least exotic origins, originating in the more familiar temperate climatic zone of the lands bordering the North Atlantic. And then the next episode, we'll look at other zoonotic diseases such as Ebola, AIDS, bird flu and swine flu, and their contexts of the forest frontier and the factory farm. Before we go any further, remember to subscribe to be sure of getting future episodes. 
You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher or TuneIn Radio. Also, please follow the project on social media and most importantly, share news of the project. Peters and Sheep is on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. There are a load of new episodes lined up for 2021. As I said, after the pandemic special, we'll be going back to the hidden histories of the Irish Revolution. We know SARS-CoV-1 came from bats to humans via a civet, which is a small, mostly nocturnal forest-dwelling mammal. SARS-CoV-1 was the strain in the 2003 to 2004 outbreak. The research on where SARS-CoV-2 came from has not been done yet. And SARS-CoV-2 is the specific strain in the current pandemic. But we can talk about lots of other zoonotic diseases, so we can make an educated guess as to where it came from. Most likely also bats. But the important thing is the overall process is driving our relationship with non-human nature, rather than this or that species of bat. Some jargon to get through first off. We need to think of ecosystems, biodiversity, and monoculture. So by ecosystem is meant the totality of connections and relationships between different animals and physical processes within a particular space. The idea here is to think in terms of system rather than individual isolated species. The most obvious example is one type of animal will be the food for another type of animal, but there can also be a living space and a source of sustenance for yet more creatures as they decompose. They can be competition to one creature or a host to another, but they all also need various ongoing physical processes in the wider environment to sustain life. Basically, a system. Biodiversity means the extent and variety of living creatures in any space. And monoculture, this is where you have one plant species predominant, like fields and fields of the one crop. Maybe we need to start thinking in terms of animal monoculture. The big takeaway here is that as humans radically simplify ecosystems by making them less diverse, we create spaces for diseases to thrive in. The really short and simple version is either concentrations of populations of particular short-lived animals, like in battery farms, that's a disease-friendly environment, or we shape environments in particular ways that particular animals become more numerous, and those animals happen to be the host for particular diseases. But even just resource extraction going deeper into forests with logging and mining can shake things out. It is all opening up more of an interface between humans and potential situations where hitherto isolated pathogens can spill over to humans. Battery farms are probably the big one in terms of actually creating spaces which, in evolutionary terms, select for virulence and pathogens. The end result is ecosystems which are just less diverse and simpler, more disease-prone, and at the same time more interconnected through the networks and nodes of a global economy. Now, I am not an ecologist. This is an area I've been looking into through reading popular science since we have been hit with COVID. So that's unlike the other podcasts, which were based a lot on my own research. So I just want to give credit here and mention the major works that fed into what I'm talking about. Um, first off, you have the monster at our door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu by Mike Davis, which came out in 2005. Then you have 2010's Lyme Disease, The Ecology of a Complex System by Richard S. Ostfeld. Then you have Spillover, 
Animal Infections in the Next Human Pandemic by David Quammen, which came out in 2012. And finally, uh, Robert G. Wallace's Big Farms Make Big Flu Dispatches on Influenza, Agribusiness and the Nature of Science. That came out in 2016. So most of this episode has been put together through drawing on the research in those books. So check them out if you want to explore these ideas more. There will be details of these books and other sources up on the website. That's petersandsheep.ie. Another way of looking at this issue of a human-shaped landscape, a view over a longer time frame, is to consider forest cover. A little over 10% of Ireland's land area is under trees. Now, presumably those are figures for the 26 counties rather than the 32 counties. Of that, less than 2% is deciduous broadleaf trees. That is one of the lowest figures for forest cover in the EU, and most of that area under trees is in non-native conifer forestry plantation. Even some deciduous broadleaf tree species are comparatively recent introductions. Hedges do account for another slice of tree cover, but hedges are again very much a human-made landscape feature. Those are fairly dramatic landscape changes even since the 1600s when the island had much more native deciduous broadleaf woodland than it has now. At least one-eighth of the island was wood in 1600, while by the 1790s a French visitor could comment that they had not left wood enough to make a toothpick in many places. This isn't just a matter of thinking oaks are prettier than Sitka spruces either, though obviously they are. There are very practical environmental and social consequences to these changes. But for the moment we'll stick with the changes themselves. Now these landscape changes, in 1829 comparatively more tillage and a colourful patchwork of fields, in the early 1900s comparatively more pasture and a perhaps monotonous green, and over the long term an island relatively bare of trees, these landscape changes are a part of social history. They're the doings of human society, not purely natural phenomenon. But, on the other hand, humans do not get to remake nature in whatever way they like. For instance, one of the reasons for the predominance of pasture is simply the mild, moist climate, which is good for grass and hence good for dairy and beef production. That said, the decline of more mixed forms of farming is indeed a social phenomenon about the long-term patterns of relationships between humans. Likewise, among the reasons for the relatively lower level of forest cover in Ireland, in comparison to other European countries, is a particular climate-linked aftermath of original forest clearance in Ireland. Prehistoric farmers in Ireland seem to have had a preference for coastal sites, most likely so they could enjoy the bounty of the sea as well as the sustenance of the land, and also a preference for hillside slopes, probably as those slopes had their own natural drainage and had thinner tree cover so that it could be more easily cleared. But what that clearance did is expose the soils to the heavy west of Ireland rainfall and hence lead to mineral leaching and the development of the acidic blanket bog that covers much of the upland areas and coastal areas of the west of Ireland. That's why in North Mayo there are extensive field systems buried underneath blankets of bog. The upshot of this is that some of the lowest value land in Ireland from the point of view of agricultural production is also an environment not so conducive to reverting to forest. This, I would suggest, is different from more marginal upland farmland on the continent, which can be swiftly retaken by forest. A big exception to the drab brown bog, of course, is the rocky grey moonscape of the burn, partly a product of soil erosion which came after the years of forest clearance. The burn is, of course, threatened by encroaching hazel scrub, 
Whereas 150 years ago, when land use was at its most intensive, the area was comprehensively shorn of trees. The point of this is that the end result of this deforestation is not simply a natural phenomenon or a social phenomenon. It's a mixture of both. It's also worth noting that the end result was the creation of the new environments of blanket bog and burn. Another problematic trap with putting the social, the cultural, the human over here and the natural over there is that we have evolved as highly adaptable tool users capable of complex communications and complex societies. That is the animal we are. Our human nature is nature. So this is both an ecological question and a sociological question. It concerns both the relationship between human society and non-human nature and the particular form of human society because different forms of societies will have different corresponding relations with non-human nature. So I'm going to look at the more ecological end of things first by way of introduction and we'll talk about Lyme disease for starters. Because its origins are in the less exotic, more familiar North Atlantic world and because it sets the ecological scene. Lyme was first discovered or recognised in a place called Lyme, Massachusetts, in the northeastern part of the United States, in the mid-1970s. But in fact, there is evidence of it much earlier than that. Evidence in both medical literature and in the museum samples of rodents, evidence dating back to the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century. What happened in Lyme, Massachusetts, in the 1970s, was that a lot of kids were being diagnosed with a rare condition called juvenile rheumatoid arthritis which is quite a rare condition and apparently this condition was occurring in the Lyme district at a rate a hundred times what it should have been. Some parents caught nod to some of this, brought the concerns to the Department of Health and were directed to researchers at Yale University. Now, the agents which cause disease are called pathogens. There is that collective term because those agents are of different types. Mostly this episode is about diseases caused by viruses or mostly what we have to think about in regard to zoonotic diseases is... Diseases caused by viruses. We'll be looking at others in our next episode. But Lyme is caused by bacteria. Ticks get the blame for Lyme. And obviously they're the thing we can just about see if we are lucky or maybe unlucky. Whereas we need a microscope to see the bacteria. But ticks are just what is called the vector. Agents of transmission. Spreading the disease from one animal to another. Ticks, if you are fortunate enough not to know about them, or perhaps unfortunate enough, are like a sort of blood-drinking spider, very small ones. I had thought they just went for mammal blood, but apparently they'll go for birds and even amphibians and reptiles too. If you spend any time outdoors in the countryside, I strongly suggest you read up on ticks and lime, get tick repellent, learn how to spot them, learn how to remove them from a human body, learn how to recognise lime symptoms. Another part of the anti-tick arsenal is appropriate clothing. Long sleeves, long trousers, shirt tucked into trousers, trousers tucked into shot socks. There's a whole other question of whether you should wear light-coloured clothing or not. Another measure people take is avoiding areas of dense vegetation, like avoiding high grass, for instance. Lyme can be a seriously debilitating disease, like the fact it was misdiagnosed as something called juvenile rheumatoid arthritis says a lot. So it's worth reading up on it yourself. I'm not putting myself forward as an expert on the topic. I've just read a little on it to take my own countermeasures. Enough of the public health broadcast. I'm a doctor of philosophy, not a doctor of medicine. The important thing here for the purposes of this episode is that ticks are the vectors of the disease. The bacteria just hitches a ride on the ticks, from one animal to another, hopefully not to me or you. 
From the ecological point of view, it is more rodents we need to be thinking of in regard to Lyme than ticks. We need to watch out for ticks, but it actually seems to be more a matter of increases in the populations of particular types of rodent that leads to an increase in Lyme. Where rodents come into it is that apart from the vector, the other category for consideration is what is called the reservoir host. The reservoir host is the animal in which any particular pathogen or disease-causing agent usually resides. The reservoir host is really important for understanding the environmental context of epidemic diseases. Reservoir hosts are more important for our topic here than the vectors. Now, the reservoir host and the pathogen will have co-evolved together. So they can do a bit of co-living, a bit of living with COVID, as it were. The host will have, over many, many generations, developed a degree of immunity to the worst potential effects of the pathogen. And the pathogen will not evolve successfully in a host which will knock flat dead upon first infection. That is an evolutionary dead end for the pathogen. It needs to keep the host alive to be able to replicate into new hosts. The whole reservoir host phenomenon seems to mostly be a story of rats and bats and birds too. There are particular features of these creatures that make them suited to the role of reservoir host. Now, deer get a lot of flack regarding Lyme. But the work of ecologist Richard S. Osfeld identified the central role of white-footed mice, eastern chipmunks and shrews. Now, that was North American research and doubtless the European situation is a little different. The important thing here for our purposes is to understand the processes by which particular interactions between human society and the natural ecology lead to the prevalence of disease. I should also say that uh, Ostfeld did confirm that deer actually do play a role in the life cycle of ticks. It's just that they do not require a large population of deer for that to happen. The bodies of deer provide a kind of party venue for ticks where lots of them get together and some of them pair off to reproduce. As I said, this is North American research, and I don't know if what I'm about to broach has been researched, but it strikes me that cattle could play the same role in this as deer. I know where I live, there are lots of ticks and very little deer. In any case, the sex life of ticks is thankfully alien territory to me. So what happens is there is a spillover, a transmission from a reservoir host into another animal. This is pretty much par for the course with Lyme because it's vector-borne, carried by the tick. It is a more complicated and difficult process with many other diseases. They have to jump to a new host, adapt and thrive and evolve to the new host. When reading on the Lyme-prevalent environments in the eastern United States, the words suburban and exurban come up a lot. Exurban is not a word we use so much on this side of the Atlantic, but what it means is a plethora of one-off rural housing in the sort of outer limits of the commuter belt, where resides typically people in an income bracket above the people in the suburbs. What this suburbanization and exurbanization does is it breaks up the areas of wildlife habitat into smaller and smaller islands of woodland and, shall we say, wilder nature, broken into islands in a sea of lawns, concrete and tarmac. Now, that is an environment which cannot sustain the hitherto diverse population of wildlife. There is less biodiversity, or to put it more plainly, less of all the different types of animals that lived there before. What has happened is humans have radically altered the environment in such a way as to make it less capable of providing life to the predators and competitors of the rodent reservoir hosts. Then the ticks feed on the rodents and spread the lime-causing pathogen from the rodents to other animals, including humans. 
At the same time, this is an environment with more humans in it, in their one-off rural houses, where their children can be bitten by ticks playing while they're playing on the lawn, and those are the ticks living on the booming population of rodents. The way that Oswald describes it in his 2011 book, Lyme Disease, the Ecology of a Complex System, is like this. We know that walking into a small wood lot is much riskier than walking into a nearby large extensive forest. We know that hiking in the oak woods two summers after a big acorn year is much riskier than hiking in the same woods after an acorn failure. We know that forests that house many species of mammals and birds are safer than those that support fewer species. We know that more opossums and squirrels there are in the woods, the lower the risk of Lyme disease, and we suspect that the same is true of owls, hawks and weasels. End quote. So in a nutshell, less squirrels means more share of the food supply for mice, and hence more mice. Less owls means more mice because the owls are not there to eat the mouse, and more mice means more lime. So while people who are concerned about ecological matters are often dismissed as tree huggers or as being into slugs and snails, from this perspective we are learning about now, we might say not caring about it makes you a rat lover or perhaps someone who is a bit soft on viruses. So the important takeaway from the Lyme experience is you have a reservoir host, a creature a disease agent typically resides in a creature with particularly pathogen-friendly features, like having a high population density as one, like when you have thousands of bats crammed together in a cave. Then you have the human society natural ecology interface tipping things in a disease-friendly direction. In the case of Lyme, that means reshaping the environment so that it becomes one in which a reservoir host can thrive. In other cases, as we shall see in the next episode of factory farming, that means mimicking and amplifying the natural features of a reservoir host. Like lots of the same animal, in the one place with short lives. We can think of this as degrading an ecosystem or disrupting an ecosystem. I like to think of turning of it as turning something complex into something simple, like a monoculture, that one crop environment. On the other hand, it is anything but simple when that simplicity is a breeding ground for pandemic disease. In passing, it is worthwhile mentioning that climate change and warmer, longer summers give longer life to ticks. So it's not all down to habitat destruction. It's also worth considering what is driving suburbanization and exurbanization. There is an irony there in that partly I think this has to do with an appreciation of nature in the countryside, which is some ways to do with the romantic view of wild nature that I was critical of in the opening parts of this podcast, but it's also some ways to do with the fact that trees, flora and fauna in general are of psychological solace to us. That is, after all, why we have parks and gardens. Anyways, we can take this model from Lyme from the familiar temperate climes of the Northern Hemisphere, from the English-speaking lands lapped by the waves of the North Atlantic, and bring it out there into the wider world, where exotic people eat strange things such as pigs and chickens. That's what we'll be looking at in the next episode, which is called The Forest Frontier and the Factory Farm. Before we go, some reminders. Please remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, such as on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher and TuneIn Radio. You'll find out more about the project on the website peterssheep.ie and look us up on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram as well. On the social media accounts you'll find photos and documents and various bits and bobs related to the topics of the podcast. Please remember to support the project by sharing announcements of new episodes. Thanks for listening. The Forest Frontier and the Factory Farm sequel to this episode will be coming soon.